Open your scriptures this morning to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, where by the grace of God, let's continue studying the subject of faith and trusting the Lord to increase our own faith. We just sang a hymn, It is well, it is well with my soul. If a man has faith, then regardless of his circumstances, regardless of what might happen, children turn against him, his wife leaves them, he gets cancer, he's on his deathbed, his financial affairs are a disaster, it can still be said, it is well with my soul. But a man that has weak faith or little faith or no faith will be overthrown by the least of evil circumstances that come his way. The smallest things can happen, and they're discouraged, cast down, and destroyed. But a man who has faith in God, regardless of what happens, he can mock at fear. He can laugh at what would cause others to tremble because of his confidence in God. I cannot emphasize enough and try to appeal to your sense of achievement and your sense of competitiveness that the difference between a great Christian and a so-so average Christian, which, after all, is a failing Christian, is faith. The difference is faith. A Christian with strong faith will not be deterred by evil circumstances. A Christian with strong faith is going to do exactly what God said, even if it doesn't make sense to his natural mind, because God said it. A Christian with strong faith will do exploits. He'll obtain promises. He'll understand mysteries. He won't go through life confused and doubting, because if the Word of God declares it, he believes it, and it's a settled issue. He's proven the point, because God said it, and he believed it. He's fully persuaded and he'll be willing to sacrifice great things in order to serve and honor his God. A great Christian has great faith. A great Christian has great trust and confidence in God. That trust and confidence in God goes with him wherever he goes. When he's on the highway, he's not afraid of an automobile accident because God is with him, and he trusts in the everlasting arms that are underneath. When he's in an airplane, he is not afraid to fly. Because God is with him. His God is his keeper and will preserve his soul. Though disease might strike, a man with great faith can laugh at it. And when we look at these examples in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, these men were faith faced with all sorts of evil circumstances, yet they put their trust in God. They did not doubt. They did not stagger, at least in God's judgment. They were strong in faith, they gave glory to God, and they accomplished great things, and by it they obtained a good report. I tried to emphasize last Sunday morning the importance of getting a good report card, especially when the God of heaven and earth signs his name to it, and not your fifth grade teacher. But when God signs the report card, that's something to aim for. And you achieve a good report in God's judgment by faith. Faith! It's the difference between those in this room and those out there in that room. Faith is the difference. God gave us faith. He has not given them faith. 
to the degree that you use that, you will show yourself to be different. It is a pity, though, when God gives faith and men allow their faith to be overthrown or they're weak in faith because they don't apply themselves as diligently as they should to the Word of God. For it is by hearing the Word of God that faith comes in an increase. It's pitiful. Faith is that essential element that makes a difference between us and them. They're afraid of everything. Absolutely everything. Think of anything that they're not afraid of. And I'd like to hear it. And what are we afraid of if you have great faith? Families, education of your children, our nation, economics, your inheritance, life insurance. I mean, what are you worried about if you have faith in God? The men we want to look at this morning look beyond all of the circumstances of life to the great promises that God held out beyond those things in this world. Hebrews chapter 11 is not a standalone chapter in the, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 fits right in with Paul's line of reasoning with the Hebrews. These believing Jews were being tempted to return to Judaism, to give up their Christian profession, to deny the Lord Jesus Christ and go back to the tribe of Levi and the Levitical Aaronic priesthood, to give up the new covenant for the old covenant, to give up the covenant of grace for the covenant of works because they knew that the old covenant was of divine origin and because they were suffering great persecution for having left it. And so far in this book, the apostle has warned, the apostle has given the bad example of the generation in the wilderness that lost God's rest by not taking the land of Canaan, and the apostle has made great comparisons between Jesus Christ and the new covenant with Moses and the old covenant, showing the superiority of the new covenant and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 10, after having warned them of certain judgment and fiery indignation that would devour those that would depart from the truth and would sin against the knowledge of the truth, that would cast away their confidence, he says to them in verse 38, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. That is always the test for God's children. God gives them their faith, and they are to live by that faith. The just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 is where this text is taken from. Not the faith of God, but your faith. God has given you faith by his Spirit, and it is your duty and obligation to exercise it, use it, and hold it fast, and keep your confidence that you had in the beginning of your profession. And hasn't that been the message so far? Hold fast your profession of faith. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. And he says, The just shall live by faith, and if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. We've had some do that to us, and brethren, we're going to have more do it to us. There are those that will come in and make a profession of faith, and either they never had any faith to begin with, but the faith of devils, or else they're so weak in their faith they're going to go their own way with the least persecution that arises when the sun of tribulation shines upon them or they'll be choked out by the thorns of the cares of this world. We're going to see it. I just wonder how many of you sitting here this morning are going to draw back. How many of you are going to draw back? Something bad's going to happen. You know, the water heater will go out. Your children will leave you. Your wife will run away on you. 
and you'll draw back because of no faith in God. This chapter of chapter 11 sets forth all the positive examples of great faith. Now, if you were a Hebrew Christian, these are your national heroes. And so having said the just shall live by faith, don't draw back as the destruction of Jerusalem approached and the tribulation against these Christians increased. Paul said the just shall live by faith, and if you draw back, you're drawing back unto perdition. That is the judgment that awaits this nation. Don't do it. My soul shall have no pleasure in you, but believe to the saving of your souls, because there's trouble coming. And then he immediately goes into this lengthy chapter, setting forth some great examples that ought to motivate us. When we see men who against great odds and who had very evil circumstances in their lives, yet believed in God, and they were not deterred from following hard after him. That is the purpose for this 11th chapter. Paul wants them to hold fast their profession of faith because the just shall live by faith. Let me turn you back again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we see how the Apostle Paul lived. The just shall live by faith. The men outside this room live by sight. Whatever they can see. If they can see safety, then they feel sort of safe. If they see danger, they're afraid. They live by sight. If things are going well, then they feel good about themselves based on what they see. If things are going poorly and they have troubles in their lives, then they say, well, I must be doing something wrong. Everything is by sight. Sight, sight. But look at how the Apostle Paul lived. Beginning at verse 8, Paul said, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. You want to talk about trouble, persecution, perplexity, depression? Paul had it. But he was neither destroyed, nor was he in despair, nor did he feel forsaken, nor was he distressed by it. What a man. He had more trouble than all of us, like I said last Sunday, added together and squared. You don't have troubles. You don't even know what trouble is compared to the Apostle Paul. And yet notice his attitude toward it. And let us go on to verse 17, which I know I read last Sunday. Let's get verse 16. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Paul had more happening to him than you can imagine, and his outward man was perishing under the weight of all that he was facing. Yet his inward man had strength given to it day by day, which is why I have emphasized so much living one day at a time by the strength which God gives. Verse 17, For our light affliction, not heavy affliction, not great affliction, but our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's a light affliction, first of all, because it only lasts for a moment. 
How long can your trouble last in this world? So you've got cancer. So you're in pain. How long can it last? A moment. A moment is all it can last compared to eternity. How much is the pain? Oh, a little pain. So what? How does that compare to the exceeding, far more exceeding glory that you'll realize in the life hereafter? It's a light affliction. For our light affliction is but for a moment. Verse 18, well, Paul, how do, you, how do you have such an attitude? What's your basis for living in such a victorious way over trouble? While we look, while we look, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Now, if you read your Bibles carefully, you can see that Paul either is confused or he's talking about something that this world knows nothing of. We don't look. Wait a minute, Paul, you said look at the things that are seen. We don't look at what's happening in our lives. We don't look at what disease we might have. We don't look at what's happening to our family. We don't look at what's happening to our church. We don't look that friends that we have exhorted and encouraged have departed from the faith and are drawing back. We don't look that our nation looks like, appears to be on the brink of destruction. We don't look that our society is crumbling around us. Because those are things you can see. We look at things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. All these little troubles here are just temporal troubles. The things that you can't see with your naked eye are the eternal things that will last. The things of heaven, the things of God himself. You cannot see them with the eye of the flesh, but with the eye of faith, it is most definitely visible. He goes on to say in the very next verse, of chapter, first verse of chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, I mean, I've got cancer so bad my body disappears. We have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The worst that can happen to a child of God is the best that can happen to a child of God. Paul said, I'm in a strait betwixt two, for I'd rather depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now listen, that requires death to depart and be with Christ. The worst that can happen to a worldling is the best that can happen to the man that has faith. But it is only faith that can see through that dark curtain of death and see something on the other side worth waiting for. It is faith. And he says in the seventh verse of the fifth chapter, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. The Christian, the just, is to live by what he can't see but what he believes by faith. Look at Romans chapter 8 and see Paul's persuasion of things that he could not see with the eye of flesh. Romans chapter 8. Remember, last Sunday I preached to you, faith is the evidence of things not seen. If you were to go to a true court, if God had promised something and you had faith in that promise, that would be better evidence than if you could taste, touch, smell, hear, and see it. Because faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith fully persuades men. Remember Romans chapter 4? And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, Abraham believed he was going to have a son. He couldn't, if he looked at himself, 
he'd realize he was in trouble. If he looked at Sarah, he'd realize there's problems here. But he didn't. He had evidence that he was going to have a child. He was fully persuaded of it. Are you fully persuaded God is going to take care of you regardless? Regardless. Fully persuaded. Let come what may. God is my helper. God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I have no fear of whatever could possibly happen to me. You say that sounds like a careless life. Indeed. Be careful for nothing. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God that passeth. Our understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's a careless life. Who cares about what can happen to us in this world? There's a God in heaven. Romans chapter 8 and verse 38. The Apostle Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is Paul persuaded that death, principalities, the devil, friends, and nothing could separate him from the love of God? How was he persuaded by it? God had said it, and Paul believed it. If you've got a promise of God and you're able to believe it, you should be fully persuaded. God had said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That was enough for Paul. He knew that nothing could separate him from God, and he believed that promise. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, looking at the life of faith in the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul said, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Paul wasn't worried about the fact that he was suffering great tribulation for the cause of Christ. For I know whom I have believed. I know whom... I have believed. Do you think Paul believed that God is? I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. If Jesus Christ died for the sins of his people and Paul was convinced that based on evidence he was one of the Lord's people and one of Christ's sheep for which his sins had been paid with the blood of Christ, he was persuaded. He had the evidence. He was not afraid of death nor eternal judgment because Paul lived by faith. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and let me remind you of another point from last Sunday. And that is this. We believe things because God said they were true. We believe them by faith. We are accused by the world of being unreasonable because we believe things by faith that we cannot prove by scientific method. The five senses utterly fail when it comes to things God has promised. So we believe them by faith. The world says we're unreasonable. When we deny PhDs who spend their lives trying to prove the theory of evolution simply by saying God said He created the heavens and the earth and we believe it. Therefore we understand how these worlds came into existence. Because Hebrews 11.3 says through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that, things that have, so that things that are seen were not made of things which do appear. We know that God, His Word, created all things out of nothing. We understand how it took place. 
by faith. And they'll call you unreasonable. They'll call you a nut, a fanatic, bizarre, insane, beside yourselves, mad, as the apostles and our Savior were accused of being. But yet, what does the Word of God say to those who want to put their faith in Him? It says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, when Paul asked prayer that he might be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. You show me a man that doesn't have faith, and I'll show you a wicked man and a man that is unreasonable. It is unreasonable not to believe what God has said is true. If God has said something, it is the most reasonable thing in the world to believe that it's going to happen. Because God said it. Is, where's, the limit, where's the limitation of power or ability to get the job done? There is no limitation in God. It's unreasonable not to believe it. When we think about issues, and I mentioned several of them to you last Sunday, about the canonicity of the Scriptures, where do we get our 66 books that make up the Bible? Where did they come from? Most of you have never even thought of that issue. It's a frightening issue if you think about it. What should you do? Don't think about it. You say, that's a blind approach to life. Indeed it is. We walk by faith, not by sight. I'd rather be blind that way and live by faith because you'll never prove it in a million years trying to prove it by sight where our 66 books came from. We walk by faith. I believe this book is God's word by faith. I don't try to prove it any other way. I believe it by faith. You can spend your life and waste your life trying to prove things by sight. So important. So important. They call us unreasonable. God says we're reasonable and they're unreasonable. The theory of evolution claims that matter existed and matter changed its form. Big Bang Theory, process of time, Matter changed its form. What did God say in Hebrews 11.3? We understand that things that are seen were not made of things which do appear. There was no transformation of matter. There was creation of matter out of nothing. Evolution is denied. On what basis? Faith. You want to try to deny evolution on any other basis? There have been debates where the very finest of Christian scientists have tried to prove the theory of creation. They've never done it to the satisfaction of a man that doesn't have faith because it's impossible. How can you ever use science to prove that something came out of nothing? Science requires observable phenomena in order to ever apply its principles and laws to verify. And guess what? When something's created of nothing, what are you going to apply your rules to? You say, you're making our religion so simple. It is, brethren. It is, brethren. And Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, beware of those men that will use science, falsely so-called. Beware of them. Colossians chapter 2, Paul warned about those men that would use vain philosophy in order to deceive and overthrow the faith of God's elect. Brethren, we stand by faith. The men out there, if you're reasoning with a man about the King James Bible, about creation, about salvation, about heaven, and he doesn't believe it, don't waste your time with him. He doesn't have faith. He's an unreasonable man. How are you going to reason with an unreasonable man? Look at Luke chapter 16. 
Luke chapter 16. Please bear with me on this point. Some of you in the past have spent time and effort wanting to prove creation by scientific verification. Some of us have spent our time trying to prove the authenticity of the King James Version by manuscript evidence and by some lineage of manuscripts called the received text. There's more problems in the received, which received text? Let's ask that question first. There's a pile of them, and they're different. Where did the King James Bible come from? No one can show where every word in the King James Bible came from. Believe me, brethren, I can show you that the words the King James Bible had in 1611, some of those have changed. Do I care? Do I consider it? Should you consider it? How much time should we spend thinking about it? We walk by faith, not by sight. I've always wondered why Paul didn't spend one word telling Timothy to become familiar with the manuscripts. Why, there, there isn't a word in it about going to seminary to learn anything about textual criticism, manuscript history, or anything else. God said it. We believe it. There, there lies within all of us the confidence that if we were to sit down with a person who was, had average sincerity and they would listen to us for an hour, we could bring to bear such powerful arguments and reason with them that we could give them faith and they would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There lies within all of us that error to some degree where we think if I just had time and they'd listen to me, I could persuade them of the truth of the gospel. I love Luke chapter 16 and verse 27. This is the rich man in hell. Then he said, speaking to Abraham, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment, the rich man's begging mercy from Abraham for his five brethren. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Can you think of a more powerful sign that God could ever give than for a man to rise from the dead and tell you that something is true? Abraham here is giving us a lesson that we should never forget. If a man is not able to learn from hearing the word of God, Moses and the prophets, if he hasn't believed in God by hearing the scriptures, he will not be, what's the word? He will not be persuaded even though one might rise from the dead because faith is a gift from God. And if you find a man with faith, you don't need to rise from the dead. All you've got to do is flip a few pages and there will be something in those pages, yes, in those pages, that will match up with something in his heart and he'll say, I believe that. That's the truth of God. And you didn't rise from the dead at all. And in fact, he may look at your life and see lots of things that aren't even in agreement with the word of God. None of us are perfect. He's going to see sin in our lives. But he's going to look at the Word of God and it's going to match up with something inside and he's going to believe the message. But though one rise from the dead, he will not be persuaded. 
but by faith. Paul was persuaded of many things. And so it should be with us. Back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. What makes a great Christian? It's the man who disregards everything he can see. Abraham considered not his own body. He didn't think about the fact he was incapable of reproducing a child. He just ignored that fact. We don't care what science has to say about the formation of fossils that somehow proves that the world is 6,000 years old. They can't prove it anyway. The Bible says the world is 6,000 years old. That's all I need. I believe that. I'm fully persuaded of it. I understand it, don't you? Where did our 66 books come from? You don't need seminary courses. All seminary courses are based on sight. Based on sight. Trying to give you evidence that you can see with your eyes to prove the canonicity or the inspiration or the preservation of your Bibles. When the Bible tells us itself that we're to walk by faith and not by such sight. Last Sunday we covered verses 1 through 7. Brethren, verse 2 tells us, For by it the elders obtained a good report. And what is that it? Faith. Faith. Look at verse 39 of the same chapter. Summing up, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith. Notice at the beginning, verse 2, at the end, verse 39, the whole emphasis is we have a list here of great men who accomplished great things through faith. Faith makes the difference between an average Christian, which is a failing Christian, and a great Christian. If you want to be average, you are not meeting up with what God has set forth for you as your goal. Paul said we all run in the race, but one wins the prize. And you should so run, the apostle went on to say, run to win that prize that ye may obtain, that crown that God has set forth for those that will press. And it's by faith. So what if men mock at you? for not having a, quote, stronger, unquote, defense of the King James Bible. You've got a defense as strong as God would ever want you to have. He's promised His Word. Hebrews chapter 11, Abel in verse 4. There's one other point I want to go back to from last Sunday. That's verse 33. Hebrews 11, verse 33 where it says, "...who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, and so forth." And I want to remind you of the five things or the five categories of deeds that faith is able to accomplish. First of all, faith is able to attempt great things, do exploits for God. Remember the example was Caleb who took the mountain of the Anakim because of his great faith in God. Give me this mountain. What caused a man to say something like that? Great faith. Faith will attempt great things for God. Second, faith works righteousness. Faith has such confidence in God that whatever God said is true and right, that it will keep even the most minute of God's commandments. Moses did not have faith. And I showed you from the book of Numbers that Moses did not believe, and that was the reason God kept him from the land of Canaan. When he did not speak to the rock, but smote it instead, God said, because you believed me not. He lacked in faith at that crucial moment. Faith believes whatever God said 
and does not modify it in his mind. Now Moses knew that his rod was God's rod. Moses had the right rock in mind. And Moses had the experience of smiting a rock before and water coming from that rock. But when he did it the second time, it was in violation of what God had said. And therefore he was denied the blessings because he didn't have faith. Faith looks at God's word and women, if that commandment is to submit and reverence and honor your husbands, then it looks at all those passages in the scriptures as I've talked in the last two Sunday evenings, it looks at them, it is persuaded of them, it is fully convinced that the emphasis in the Word of God is right. Not just the words, not just this vague word submission, but the emphasis in the Word of God. Calling your husband Lord being a typical example of reverencing your husband. Women, great faith, will do exactly what the Word of God teaches. It will not modify it in any way, saying, well, things aren't quite the same as they used to be. We live in a more enlightened age. There has never been an age more enlightened than the age recorded in God's Word, especially when it deals with the nation of Israel, because that is when the greatest degree of light was ever shown to a nation as how they ought to live one with another. Don't ever think you can surpass the light God has given. And Paul didn't ever change the rule about women in the New Testament. If you go read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he happens to put in commas the little phrase, as also saith the law. Not a change. Women, let's make this lesson practical. Exactly as God described it, no modification. Men, training your children loving your wives, which we will be getting to. If God said it, then we must do it. You do not have a better perspective on marriage than God had. Whatever God said, we must do it. God told Abel to bring a bloody sacrifice to a certain place at a certain time and worship him, and Abel did it. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground, and God was not pleased with his sacrifice. God had already established that blood, blood, was what was to be offered. He shed blood for Adam. Noah shed blood. Abraham shed blood. And if you're going to read Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24, it is the blood of Abel's sacrifice that made it acceptable. Because he did exactly what God said. He did not modify it. Faith works righteousness. Point number three, faith obtains promises. God holds out promises to, pe to men, and they're achieved by keeping his conditions by faith. There's lots of promises in Scripture. Do you believe the Bible when it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it? That's a promise. How do you obtain the promise? How do you obtain that promise? By training up that child in the way the Bible teaches a child ought to be trained. You modify it, you whimp out, you chicken out, you get intimidated by your child, God have mercy on your wretched soul. You are cruising for a bruising in life. Do it exactly the way God said. There's no enlightenment about child training. Children are stupid. Children are to be trained with a rod. Listen, anybody who thinks that they're beyond that and that we're more enlightened than those days, they're in the pit of darkness and confusion 
about child training. Look at our nation. It's an evidence of what light, quote and unquote, can do for you. Faith obtains promises. God told Abraham, you're going to have a son, and I'm going to make the, the descendants of that son so numerous as the stars of the heaven for multitude. Abraham believed that, and he achieved that. He obtained that promise. Not only does faith obtain promises, faith understands mysteries. How do we understand all the mysteries in the Word of God, the Trinity, heaven, the being of God, salvation, inspiration of the Scriptures, preservation of the Scriptures, creation, regeneration? Do you understand regeneration? By faith we understand as much as God wants us to know. I was dead in trespasses and sins, and Jesus Christ by His voice spoke life into me, and now I'm living spiritually. I understand it. I believe it by faith. I don't need someone to try to convince me through human illustrations of how regeneration takes place. The only human illustration I'll ever use are the ones that God gives. Being born again, John chapter 3, it's like a birth the first time except somewhat different. And it's like the final resurrection, John chapter 5. We'll use the resurrection, we'll use the illustrations that God uses. Because once you resort to sight to prove invisible things, you're playing the fool. To try to use things that are seen to prove invisible things. And last of all, faith makes great sacrifices for God. How would men sacrifice very dear things to themselves in order to follow God unless it was great confidence that God is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him? Faith does exploits. Faith works righteousness. Faith obtains promises. Faith understands mysteries. And faith sacrifices great things for God. Verse 4 of Hebrews 11, Abel worked righteousness by offering the proper sacrifice to God, and he did it by faith because he believed that God meant what he said and that God rewarded them that diligently sought him. Now, Cain sort of sought God, the right God, right place, and the right time, but he didn't seek him diligently. And Abel had the testimony given of him that he was righteous according to Hebrews 11.4. Enoch in verse 5, had the testimony that he pleased God because before his translation, for 365 years, Enoch walked with God. Enoch worked righteousness by doing everything that God expected of him. And he pleased God. And he walked with God. He had a close relationship with God. He was in personal communion with God. And God took him. And he did it all by faith. Faith works righteousness that is pleasing to God. And in verse 6, the apostle interjects about that pleasing life of Enoch by writing, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. A natural man without faith can do nothing to please God. It is impossible for a natural man to please God. It doesn't matter what he does. If he comes to church, puts a great sum in the offering, sings, oh, how I love Jesus, comes forward and makes a profession of faith. It's all irrelevant if he doesn't have faith. And he doesn't do it because of his confidence in God. Remember, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The man who helps the little old lady across the street and carries her groceries to her car is sinning if he doesn't do it out of faith. 
The plowing of the wicked is sin, brethren. You turn up the sod in a field. You don't do it out of confidence in God and trust in Him. You're sinning in the deed. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Two things God expects us to believe. Number one, that He is. God exists. There is a God in heaven at this hour. To the degree you believe that, you'll be a man of faith or a woman of faith. Not only that, He expects us to believe that He is a rewarder. He does keep His promises. He does bless those that diligently seek Him. Not just seek Him. Weak faith seeks God. Strong faith diligently seeks God. Verse 7, Noah, by his faith, had heard the message from God that there was going to be a worldwide flood. For 100 years, he worked in the building of an ark to the saving of his house. He was moved with fear. He didn't see rain clouds. He didn't hear about floods a few countries away. He did it because God said there would be a flood. And though he was persecuted, reviled, and made a reproach of the ungodly, disobedient ones around him that he preached to, he went ahead and built it anyway. And though it took a hundred years, and I wonder how many of you would have the patience to work a hundred years simply based on a promise of God there wasn't the least bit of evidence for that promise coming true for 100 years. We get tired in a week or two trying to keep some promise of God. You women, are you all as fired up as you were a couple of weeks ago when I first, first preached on the submission of women? How long will it be before you start to slack off? Noah kept building, and when the flood came, the ark was finished, and Noah was incited by faith. Verses 8 through 10. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now the Apostle Paul very wisely includes Abraham in the hall of faith because the Hebrews were the descendants of Abraham. Here was their father. And so Paul spends a number of verses on the faith of Abraham. Abraham received a call from God while he was an idol worshiper in a city called Ur in a nation called the Chaldean nation the forerunner of the Babylonian Empire. He lived in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. You can find it on a map. He was an idol worshiper. The Bible tells us that repeatedly, and so were his fathers. And God called him and obviously gave him faith and called him to go out into a land that he should have to receive for an inheritance. He obeyed. He went out not knowing where he was going. He hadn't been to Canaan before. He didn't know anything about it, brethren. They couldn't get an atlas back then. You didn't call your state farm insurance agent and ask for an atlas that would tell you all about the geography of this place called Canaan. He didn't know where he was going. He stepped out by faith. He left home, language, friends, family, some family. The ones he didn't leave, God took care of that for him. He went from Ur to a place called Haran. It was called Haran because Abraham named it Haran. 
because that's where his, he named it after his brother that died before he left Ur. Abraham had two brothers. Haran died before he left Ur. Then he went to a city that was called Haran. And then in Haran, God killed his father because God had told Abraham to leave his family and go into the land. And finally from Haran, Abraham with Lot and with Sarai, his wife, came into the land of Canaan. Look at Acts chapter 7, where Stephen gives this story to us. Yes, we could look at many passages in the book of Genesis that teach the same lesson, but hopefully all of you are familiar to some degree with the life of Abraham. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. Stephen begins his sermon. Men, brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Charon, New Testament version of Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. You Hebrews, you fathers, men and brethren, the land where you're dwelling is a land that Abraham received by promise. He left Ur, he went to Haran, his father and his brother died, and he finally entered into this land because God called him to leave his family. Abraham obeyed the call of God to leave his country and his family and come into the land of Canaan, and he did so. But if you're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, if you can look at both, keep your finger at Acts chapter 7. We read in verse 9 these interesting words. Let's first of all be reminded of what verse 8 said, that he should after receive for an inheritance. Abraham was called to go into a land that he, not his descendants, but he was to receive for an inheritance. Verse 9 tells us by faith he sojourned in the land of promise. God had promised him the land, but he was only a sojourner there. He was a nomad. He didn't own the land. As in a strange country, it wasn't his. He had to ask for water rights. He had to fight for water rights. He had to buy a piece of property to bury his wife, Sarah. He dwelled in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. What's a tabernacle, brethren? A fancy palace in a, in a city? A tent. Abraham dwelled in a tent. He didn't have, according to Acts chapter 7, if you look and let me read verse 5, he didn't have one square foot of that land by inheritance. And he gave him none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. Now here's a man. God has said, leave your country, leave your family, and come into a country that I'll give you for your inheritance. And then he never gave it to him for his inheritance. If you'll go read the promises in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 13, 15, 17, and 18, you will find out that God promised, I promise to give to thee this land for an everlasting possession. 
and he never received it. Do you know how long Abraham lived, never having received any property? 100 years. He died at the ripe old age of 175. God called him into that land at the age of 75, according to Genesis chapter 12. For 100 years, there was this promise held out in front of Abraham, and he never received it. Or did he receive it? How did he receive it? By faith, he received it, according to verse 10 of Hebrews 11. For he looked. Now let's stop and think about the word look for just a minute. Abraham's in the land of Canaan. God has said, look to the east, look to the west, look to the north, look to the south. Everything you can see, I'm going to give you. Did he look at that property as the fulfillment of God's promise? What did he look at? Hebrews 11 and verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham looked through and beyond the promises of Canaan to a heavenly city that was the far greater fulfillment of the promises of an everlasting possession than was a piece of arid, dry ground called Canaan. And yet God did keep the natural promises anyway by giving that land to his descendants. But the main fulfillment of I will give thee this land is found in the promise of eternal heaven. And that is what Abraham looked for when he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Brethren, this man stepped out by faith. He didn't know where he was going. He left everything that was sure to him, and he stepped out by faith. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. Or let me read to you Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Forget your understanding of things. Forget it. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and he'll direct your paths and your steps. Acknowledge him, and he'll direct you. Abraham acknowledged God. God said, move. Abraham moved. And he came into the land of Canaan, and for 100 years he lived without having received any promises of earthly soil. No, not so much as to put the sole of his foot on. Someone will say, well, what about the piece that he bought for Sarah's burial ground? He didn't receive that by inheritance. When you have to buy it, brethren, you're not getting it by inheritance. You're getting it by free market economics, not by inheritance. He didn't receive so much as to put the sole of his foot on by inheritance. And yet he received an everlasting city by inheritance because that is called our eternal inheritance, heaven itself. Let's look at the word city just briefly to see that the city that Abraham was looking for was the city called heaven. Look at chapter 12 and verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. Now here's the city whose builder and maker is God because it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. This city is wherever God is, wherever there is an innumerable company of angels, 
wherever there is a book that has the names written, wherever the spirits of just men made perfect are located, that is called the city of the heavenly Jerusalem. And that is what Abraham looked for in the promise of God. Remember, God had been building this city from before the foundation of the world. For I read in Matthew chapter 25, when those on his right hand shall be, en shall be offered an entrance into his everlasting kingdom, the Savior will say, which was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So obviously God had a city that he could tell Abraham about. Look at chapter 13 and verse 14. Hebrews 13:14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Some Jew might think that Jerusalem in this world was the place that Abraham was looking for, or some renewed Jerusalem. But we don't have a continuing city here, but we seek one to come. There is a city to come. It's just been described for us. And if you were to turn to Revelation chapter 21, John says, Behold, I saw coming down from heaven the heavenly Jerusalem. And it goes on to describe that great city in the 21st chapter of the book of the Revelation. That's what Abraham looked for. But notice, if Abraham had put his eyes down in this world, would he have been happy with the fulfillment of promises? He never had enough to put the sole of his foot on. Did he get discouraged? Just kept wandering around like a nomad, pitching his tent, picking up his tent, moving to a new location, pitching his tent. Brethren, there may be, may be promises God has offered you that he'll never fulfill in this world but he'll fulfill them in the world to come. And if you've got strong faith, you won't care that he didn't fulfill them in this world because you'll look beyond the fulfillment in the world to come. And then he may take a long time to fulfill his promises in this world. It may be a hundred years before a flood came, like it did with Noah. So two things you need to keep in mind. When God makes a promise, and by faith you believe that promise, it may take a while before it's fulfilled, a long while. And second, it may never be fulfilled in this world. It may be fulfilled in the world to come. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. Now here's the wife of Abraham commended for her faith. Women, take note. And was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. God was able to do what he said. Verse 12, Therefore sprang there even of one. Who is that one? Abraham. And him as good as dead. I mean, Abraham reproductively was worthless. As good as dead. So many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Sarah judged God faithful. And the one man Abraham became the source of the great nation of Israel. From him came a multitude, innumerable, like the stars of heaven, like the sand which is by the seashore. Now there's a question that automatically comes to your mind. It says through faith, Sarah, if I remember correctly, Sarah laughed when God said she was going to have a baby. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. This is a comforting, comforting 
revelation that Paul gives us in Hebrews chapter 11. He already gave it in Romans chapter 4. For those of you who thought last Sunday, this is a comforting thought. I want to read in Genesis chapter 17. Let's go to chapter 18 first. We'll come back to 17. God is speaking with Abraham outside the tent. Genesis 18 and verse 11 describes their state reproductively. Abraham and Sarah were dead. It ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. She had passed menopause. Verse 12, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. She laughed within herself at the thought of having a child because God had just told Abraham outside the tent she was going to have a child. And the Lord says to Abraham in verse 13, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child which am old? Sarah laughed and God heard the laughter. But before we condemn Sarah unmercifully, Let's turn back one chapter to Genesis chapter 17 to where the great example of faith, the man that gave such an example to Sarah, shows his colors. Genesis chapter 17, beginning at verse 15. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. I mean, God, don't be so ridiculous to think that Sarah's going to have a son. Can't you use Ishmael? He fell on his face and laughed. And we talk about people falling out of their chairs and rolling on the floor in laughter. Well, there was Abraham. Don't blame Sarah until you read Genesis chapter 17. She had a great example to follow. She could hear him guff falling out there in front of the tent wherever God was speaking to him about childbirth. And so she did the same thing. I don't pick on Sarah when it comes to her laughter because Abraham did it in a greater way right before God. At least Sarah was in her tent. <laughs> Now, brethren, how can Abraham have laughed and Sarah laughed and we come to Romans chapter 4 and it says that Abraham staggered not at the promise of God but was strong in faith? How can we get to Hebrews 11 and find that through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed? How can that happen? God is able and does overlook imperfection in our faith. Look at 1 Kings chapter 15 for another illustration of this point. He staggered not at the promise of God? You mean falling down and laughing on your face on the ground isn't staggering at the promise of God? It sounds to me like he totally choked on it. Why would God say he staggered not at the promise of God? Because overall, overall viewed, Abraham believed that he was able to have a son by Sarah. His initial reaction was weak. But overall, 
his confidence that God was able to do it was strong. God can overlook imperfection and call it perfect. 1 Kings 15:14 describes the king Asa. And it describes in verses 12 and 13 the great things that he did. Asa was a great man. He took away the Sodomites out of the land. I wish George Bush was an Asa. I wish he'd take all the Sodomites out of the land. There wouldn't be unemployment, brethren. If one out of ten men in this nation were done away with, we'd have full employment. And do away with all the Sodomites. Oh, for a king like Asa. And he removed all the idols that his fathers had made, verse 12. And he also wasn't influenced by his mother. Even her he removed from being queen. He fired his mother. Now that's a man. That's a man with faith. He fired his mother from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it by the brook Kydron. Now that's a good man. There's a man with some faith. Mama did not pull strings on this one. He fired her and destroyed her idol. He gave no regard because she happened to be family. He obeyed God. But look at verse 14. But, but the high places were not removed. He didn't take away the high places. places. Therefore God came down in fiery vengeance and destroyed him from among... Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. Now, wait a minute. How could Asa's heart be perfect with the Lord all his days when there were high places that should have been taken down? We don't know exactly why the high places weren't taken down. Maybe he forgot about them. Because the high places were used to worship God. They were not, they were, sometimes they were used to worship idols. You'll find Solomon worshiping God in the high places. Instead of just at Jerusalem, they worshiped God in the high places. Maybe he thought, because we're worshiping God, and it never even crossed his mind that he was supposed to only do it at Jerusalem. Sometimes God shows mercy when a man's heart is perfect before him, even though he overlooks some detail. That is so comforting, because when we look at faith, for those of us who are honest, we know inside our faith isn't perfect. Our faith misses things. We don't maintain a perfect home. We don't maintain a perfect relationship with God personally. And yet, what can God call it? Perfect. Perfect. You know, when the Bible says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, we're to aim for perfection. And God can get us there even when we think we haven't made it. That is comforting. Look at verse 5 of the same chapter. Speaking of the benefit that God gave to the sons of David. Verse 5, because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. There was only one thing God held against David, and that was committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. Can you think of any other sins that David committed? He numbered Jerusalem. How many men died for that sin? 70,000 men died for that sin. Did God remember it? What else did David not do very well at? His children. He was the most miserable father in the Bible. We don't read of a family that had more incest, sedition, and adultery than David's kids. And look what it says about him. David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord 
and turn not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. I hope there's a little comfort in those two verses. But at the same time, I hope there's no excuse. If you've heard something and you don't do it, 1 Kings 15.5 and 1 Kings 15.14 will provide no excuse for you if you presumptuously presume on the Lord God. That his, it is his mercy to dispense as he did in the case of David and Asa. Look at Psalm 103 and we'll see the answer. Psalm 103 as to why Sarah is commended for her faith when she laughed and why Abraham is commended for his faith when he laughed. Psalm 103 and verse 13, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. God knows that we are saddled with a depraved human heart. He knows that we dwell in bondage, bodies of vanity. And he knows it, and he remembers it, and he shows us pity. And when a man's heart is in the right place, and as far as he knows, as much as he can see, he is obeying God diligently, God rewards him. Yea, rewards him even with the description of perfection in the case of Asa. So when we come back to Hebrews chapter 11, we can understand why God commended Sarah for her faith when initially she laughed. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 21 and see that interesting little parable that Jesus Christ gave in Matthew chapter 21. There are lots of men who, when they hear something God has promised, say, I believe it. Oh, I believe the promises of God. They sing, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Then they go out the door and live as if there were no promises. Would you rather have that kind of a man that makes such a profession when he first hears God's promise? Or would you like someone that laughs initially, and then when they get a hold of themselves and think about the promise of God, they go live according to it? Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. But what thank ye, Jesus tells us. A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he, that is the second son, answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Respectful lad, wasn't he? He even called his dad, Sir. But he didn't go. Verse 31, Jesus said, Whether of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, the first, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. You may choke when you first hear the promise or the commandment of God. Some of you women may have squirmed. I know your blood pressure went up the last two Sunday evenings. In your heart you may have choked, squirmed, felt a little uncomfortable. But if after you thought about it and reflected upon it, that this is God's word and I'm going to keep it, God looks at you and your heart is being perfect, and you'd be commended for it if you live up to it. But the person that sits here and nods their head and then sings the closing hymn with us and goes out this door and does not do what they have heard, they are the one, they are the ones that shall be under God's judgment. And it was the Pharisees and the scribes that made such a grand profession of confidence in God that were destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. 
It was the publicans and the harlots, those who had not had a very righteous life, that when they heard the message and, and then thought upon it and repented of their sins, they were the ones God blessed. They were the ones that made up his kingdom. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12, Therefore, because of Sarah's faith, therefore sprang there even of one, that one is Abraham, and him as good as dead. There sprang of one so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. From one man who had no children, and had reached the age of a hundred when he couldn't have children, who was married to a woman that was 90 and was past childbearing, from him, one man that couldn't have children, there sprang a multitude like the stars of heaven. I've preached to you before on hyperbole. This is a hyperbole here. Abraham never had descendants equal to the stars in heaven, nor did he have descendants equal to the sandwiches by the seashore, literally. He just had a tremendous family. He would have blown my little model at home on my computer to pieces because there were more than four generations in the line of that family. And it was a great multitude. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Moses here is speaking to Israel. Deuteronomy is that final lengthy exhortation and giving of the commandments of God for Israel to keep. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 9, Moses tells us, tells Israel, And I spake unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. The Lord your God hath multiplied you, and behold, ye are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. When in fact, they were only about two or three million in number, 600,000 men that could fight, that could go to war, but yet the fulfillment of the promise is there. God had told Abraham over and over again, Believe me, and I'll give you descendants and a seed like the stars of the heaven for multitude and the sandwiches by the seashore innumerable. Even in his natural progeny, the children of Israel, the promise was fulfilled according to Deuteronomy chapter 1. But in that great seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ, there is a multitude which no man can number that we read about in the fifth chapter of Revelation, whose names are written in heaven. God fulfilled his promise naturally and spiritually to the man Abraham and his wife Sarah. What makes a great Christian like Abraham or a great child of God like Abraham or a great saint like Abraham? It is faith that does not consider natural things but believes what God has said. It is faith like Abel's that does exactly as God commanded without modifying or compromising the message. And even when you have doubts and you question how strong your faith is, if you are doing what God said, and if you repent of your laughter or of your doubts about God's promises, God is able to look at your faith and say it is perfect. Because he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. And he takes pity upon us as a good father will take pity upon his children and not hold them accountable for every single little thing that they do. But remember that they are children and they will have weakness and overlook some of that weakness. That doesn't mean they don't judge and that doesn't mean God doesn't judge for imperfection. You've heard the preaching this morning. 
you know what it takes to live a life of faith if you go against that exhortation and draw back or become discouraged and cast down and destroyed by circumstances in your life, 1 Kings 15, 5 and 14 do not apply to you if you do it presumptuously to presume on the mercy of God. It is only for those not presuming who are diligently seekers of God that He has mercy for them. May God bless our men to have faith like Abraham and our women to have faith like Sarah. And though we may balk, though we may become discouraged, though we may doubt momentarily, let us repent like the publicans and the harlots and go do the will of our Father which is in heaven by faith. Some of you have left country, literally. You've left family to come and be a part of this assembly. You've done what Abraham did by faith. You came here. You didn't know what next year was going to hold for you. You don't know what five years from now is going to hold for you. You don't know where your steps will take you or where God will take your steps. But you did it anyway. And you're here. And I commend you for your faith. Don't draw back. Increase your faith. Look at the promises of God and let us all press forward to do those things that God has commanded us. There are things in our lives we must sacrifice for Him, things we must do, places we must go. We don't see the end from the beginning like God does. But God calls us to do it. Abraham did it. Let him be an example of the just living by faith.